Indeed. <laughs> um, welcome to you all. Um, um, thank you very much for coming to this seminar. My name is Elspeth Proben and I'm the Professor of Gender and Culture Studies here at Sydney University. Um, this is a particularly um, engaging and compelling panel um, for all of us um, whose lives are touched in one way or another by um, loved ones getting older, getting dementia. Um, and in fact, Luke organised this seminar when I was in Aberdeen for two months looking after my in-laws. My partner's mother is in the dementia ward and um, her father's not so hot either. And um, so the, the question of eating and ageing um, is incredibly important. Um, especially when we see what happens in those wards and what happens to people. So a very vibrant woman, um, Becky Donald, was a nurse and travelled and loved her gin and tonics and, and then unfortunately um, her appetite left her as well as many other senses. So um, as the figures put it, and I hope Alana's are right, uh, nearly a million people in Sydney um, alone in 15 years will be aged 65 and older. Now, that means very many different things and I am delighted to see uh, one of my former students, Elizabeth Young, who is true to her name, um, very young, but started her um, degree with us what, when you were 60, when you got your card and you got your um, and now at 80, thinking about a PhD. <laughs> so um, I wanted to just start off with, I've been reading a lot of the um, great American writer, uh, M.F.K. Fisher. M.F.K. Um, Fisher uh, refused to be acknowledged as a writer of food. And in fact, W.H. Auden said that she was the greatest living writer of her century in America. Um, but her... Um, but her publisher, when she started writing, said, um, oh, you don't sound like a woman. Um, I think you should use your initials. So Mary Frances Kennedy became M.F.K. Fisher. Um, and um, she is just an extraordinary writer. She produced 20-odd books at least. Um, and um, they, they go through all sorts of beautiful... Uh, personal writing about food, about place and about people. Um, and when asked to, uh, why she chose food as uh, the topic of her writing, she said, the easiest answer is to say that, like most other humans, I am hungry. But there is more to it than that. It seems to me that our three basic, um, our three basic needs for food, security and love are so mixed and mingled and entwined that we cannot think straightly of one without the others. So it happens that when I write of hunger, I'm really writing about love and the hunger for it, and warmth and the love of it and the hunger for it. And then the warmness and richness and fine reality of hunger satisfies, and it is all. And as she said, we must all grow old and we must now, um, turning to our fabulous panel, um, we are going to first hear from 
Professor Vicky Flood. Uh, Vicky has a background in nutrition and dietetics, epidemiology, public health, um, and her research areas are focused on cohort studies um, and intervention studies to uh, reduce chronic disease. And her main um, um, focus of research um, includes nutrition and eye disease, food security of vulnerable population groups, and micronutrient research. Um, so we're going to start with Vicky, who will give us um, the background um, in this area. And then we'll go to Associate Professor Li Fei Lo, who is a, um, a, a professor in aging and health in the Faculty of Health Sciences here. And she's a registered psychology with a PhD in psychiatric epidemiology, which I think is kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. I also see that you like to do things with clowns um, and to um, bring humour into dementia wards. Um, and then finally we are going to have the, the pleasure of Maureen Lamello, who is from Tender Loving Cuisine, PLC, uh, which was set up with your founder at um, uh, one of his friends had a bad uh, heart attack, a car accident, and um, Jack realised when visiting his friend how abysmal the offerings were in hospital. So uh, Maureen and her team um, helped to get nutritious and tasty meals to those who absolutely needed it. So we'll hear from each speaker and. Um, then we will uh, have a Q&A. Thank you very much. I, I thought I'd just include this little snapshot of Wentworthfield Community Gardens, which I was at on the weekend. And thank you very much for inviting me to speak to you this evening. And it's a pleasure being here and talking to you about this area. Um, and I was taken when I was there on the weekend for their open day, how many older people were, were there leading and 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 really contributing to the, the, the open day event and they were attending the garden, they were selling their produce, they were telling us about what they do and I thought this is a terrific example of what can happen in an urban environment in Western Sydney and, and people very, older people very engaged, um, active older people engaged with their local community and in that space there was also a lot of ethnic diversity as well uh, as Western Sydney does have and it's just lots of lovely fresh produce being produced and that was just on Saturday. Um, I've, I've done quite a range of different research over the years and predominantly among older people, particularly the Blue Mountains I study, but lots of things on, on Mediterranean diet and healthy brain and ageing and I'm just going to give you a little bit of a smattering of some of that research but pick out three main points for you. I'm going to look at patterns of eating across the world and what we see as healthy patterns, just touch on that briefly. I'm going to talk a little bit about food insecurity and gender and I have one of my former PhD students here, Joe Russell, and, and pleasingly I'm actually referencing that. I knew it was a surprise when Joe walked in, so that, that's quite nice. And we're going to just talk about um, something about nutrients in older people and, and focus on a little bit on vitamin B12, which is an important nutrient to consider as people get older and try and do that in the next 10 minutes. So it'll be a bit of a, a, bit of a broad brush stroke. Um, now, what do you think about when you see a picture like these, this and 
these main areas identified across the world? What do you think might be common here? What might be important? When, why have I put a slide up like this? Yeah, someone back. Yes, that's right. So these are you, well known. <laughs> they're known as the blue zones and they're living longer and they're living healthier in these population groups. And one of the, the, the things that are common to those groups across the world are some some aspects related to what they eat but also uh, the, the way that they interact with each other. So they have a healthy social circle and these are the sort of some of the features. I'm just going to quickly skip ahead to the bit in the middle that's the common between the three of them. Uh, they, ha they work, do a lot of things in family, in social, social interactions. They don't smoke. They predominantly have a plant-based diet, so little animal food products. They are physically active and they're socially engaged in their local communities and they're eating plenty of legumes. But there's some other features across them as well uh, but not necessarily common to all of those, those population groups but are also highly, um, uh, that are common across them like empowered women uh, engaging in sunshine and, and gardening. You notice that they're mostly equatorial areas so sort of climates that lend themselves to that sort of uh, physical activity out in the, the sunshine and the open air. Um, and they have some other features as well. But that's an interesting, that's a common types of situation that we see across those population groups. And there's been a lot of work and interest done in Mediterranean diets and that's just the little handout that I gave you. And that's predominantly uh, plant-based, people are socially engaged, they're gardening, they're being active. They're having some fish and seafood, they're drinking plenty of water. They're having le less in the way of animal food products and discretionary foods. They only had wine, but when they drink red wine, they drink it with their, f with their meals. They don't drink it outside of those meal times in the traditional Mediterranean diet. They may have some white wine as well, I just will say, but predominantly red wine, uh, but only with meals. Um, and in smaller quantities than we might typically consume in, in Australia. In, in our population me measures at least. So just a common features and, and they tend to do all these other things. They have their gardening, their social interaction and there's been a, a wide range of research that has shown that uh, Mediterranean diet is protective for cardiovascular disease but it's also emerging research that it's also protective for good brain health as well and we're, we're doing some work in that, that space in our group. So just a little bit of a brush about Mediterranean diets. Now I want to talk to you about food insecurity. So food insecurity is defined as when all people at all times have physical, social and economic access to sufficient, safe and nutritious food to meet their dietary needs and their food preferences for an active and healthy life so that they're able to obtain food in socially acceptable ways, unlike this poor woman here who's looking for food in a bin. And sometimes, sadly, when I used to previously work at St Vincent's Hospital, I did actually see uh, instances of this occurring in that very uh, urban environment that, was, that had, had a lot of vulnerable people and including older people in that space. Uh, in Australia, we've traditionally measured that the level of food insecurity, with our one question about whether people had enough food or not in the last 12 months, as 5%. But we are seeing when we measure it in more details and when we ask questions, more questions about food anxiety, food quality and food quantity, that actually the prevalence is higher than that level of 5%. So in a study that we did at the Blue Mountains Eye Study, and that was part of Joe's PhD, 
we found overall that around 12% of the po that older population of people aged 49 years and over were, had some level of food insecurity. And the people that were more likely to be food insecure were women in particular. So look at the difference there between the women and the men. So the women had twice as much food, level of food insecurity as, as men. So 15% compared to 8%. This was a fairly large population-based study of that area. Uh, people who were younger than 70 years, interestingly, had a higher rate of food insecurity compared to those who were older. So that might be not what you necessarily would expect, but we hypothesised a number of reasons why that was the case, which I'm not going to go into right now. And people self-reported that they had fair or poor health, had a much higher level of food insecurity as well. Um, we also found that, that in that mix, if they were divorced or separated, they were more likely to be food insecure. If they had less um, education, they were more likely to be food insecure. So there are a whole lot of things that could be driving that level of food insecurity among this population of older people. This is a little picture of my mother-in-law who's just recently, 94, we just celebrated her 94th birthday the weekend before last, recently gone into a nursing home in Ballina. This is my, my two of my three children uh, planting out some little planter boxes for her so she can enjoy. She walks outside that room in that nursing home environment. She loved gardening and, and she's, she finds it difficult to actually plant the, the now but she can still enjoy the garden in that space and water that garden. So that's my 13-year-old and my 24-year-old uh, planting out a few bits of plants for her. Not vegetables, but some flowers for her to enjoy in the spring. Um, so we are all facing, as you mentioned, Elspeth, watching our, our parents' age and, and different things that they go through in that, and that loss of functional status as they go through that. And as part of that level of food insecurity study, we also investigated function and food insecurity. And we looked at it from the point of view of physical function and mental function, measured by the SF36. And we found for those people who were food insecure, they had a lower rate of physical function and a lower mental score uh, function as well. I'm not going to go into all the details of that. That was adjusted for a whole range of, of different um, variables in, in that observation study but it was, it was certainly consistently the case using those measures, that culminated measures of, of physical function and mental function. And it was consistent with what we see also, the, the pattern of the function at a national level. So our population wasn't particularly different to the national population when they reported measures of functional status. So just to briefly sum up in the little bit of time that's left, um, that as we get older, our energy requirements are decreasing. There's a whole lot of new foods and nutrients that I've listed here. I'm going to focus on particularly vitamin B12 in a moment. So our energy requirements, according to the nutrient reco uh, uh, records, nutrient reference values for Australia, that stands for estimated average requirements, that's a, a measure of how many kilojoules we need at different ages. And so the, the, the figure on the, on the left there is the, the male's figures of energy requirements and the figure on the right is the female means. But you see as an older person that figure reduces the amount of kilojoules we need. So when you have less energy requirements, less calorie requirements if you like, but simultaneous to that, that lower calorie requirements, as we slow down, our metabolism slows down, we have higher needs for some nutrients. So we need more protein, we need more calcium, we need more vitamin D. And we need to be thinking about vitamin B12 because we have a fairly rate of, of, uh, of risk for a high level of B B12 deficiency. And, we, and our, as our gut function declines, we have problems with absorption. So our total needs don't actually decrease 
increase in vitamin B12, but because of our declining gut function, we need to think about how we absorb, how we consume that B12 in different ways. So there's a special sort of aspect about vitamin B12 that we need to consider. And in that, some work that, again, in that population of the, of the Blue Mountains that I published a number of years ago, but this has been consistently seen in other populations that I've studied since, we see a high prevalence of B12 deficiency among people who are older. So you can see that as they're increasing in their years, this, this lighter values represent uh, a, what we would call a low to moderate level of B12 deficiency. The darker colours represent overt deficiency. Um, so even at low to moderate levels of B12 of, of a, as a cut point, we see quite a high rate of people as they get older who are deficient for B12 deficiency. This is, this is around 30% of the population. I was even recently speaking to an endocrinologist I work with at Westmead Hospital and she's, she's been starting testing B12 among her older population. She's reporting the same level, around 23% overall among them are at risk for B12 deficiency. So this is something we shouldn't be ignoring because it's quite important from the point of view of for a range of, of factors, but also for our brain health. This was just published in American Journal of Clinical Nutrition recently, and people who have low to moderate levels of B12 deficiency have sh shriveled hippocampus. Their hippocampus in their brain is more likely to be shriveled. So that's part of the whole story for good brain health, and these are all the range of different things that we see with B12 deficiency. And it could be as something as simple as having an intramuscular injection for B12. We might need to have it in another way, not just taking an oral supplement if it's, if it's because maybe we're deficient because we're having poor gut absorption. So that's my focus there on just reminding you that you can ask for a serum B12 from your GP. It's, it's a fairly easy one to, and it's not very expensive test either to get that one. And just to finish off, I'm a big believer in people eating plenty of green leafy vegetables. And again, this is taken from the community gardens at Wentworth Field that I went to the other day. And there's lots of good evidence around that, from both from a Mediterranean diet point of view, but it's a rich source of carotenoids and lutein. It's healthy for our eyes. It's healthy for our brain as well. So I just encourage you to eat your spinach. <laughs> so I feel a bit of a fraud because I'm not a food researcher. Um, so I'm going to share some stories with you, I think, um, based on my experience with food and aged care and dementia care. So some background first. Um, only 7% of older people, so people over 65, live in nursing homes. So, you know, 90-something percent, 93% live in the community. And about 1 in 10 people over 65 have dementia. Um, and some of them will receive home care services, and I think... Um, We'll hear about that a bit more later. So my first job when I left uni, my, my, first my first job when I first left uni the first time was as a home care worker. And I met this lady who, with dementia who lived alone called Leela. Uh, she was very special in that um, she liked to feed me when I came to visit her. She didn't really understand where I came, which was to give her tablets, basically. And um, she, uh, she had functional difficulties and... Uh, uh, the first remarkable thing about her is that she, she washed her, um, her incontinence pads and hung them up to dry to reuse because that made sense to her. Um, the other kind of interesting thing that I witnessed when I visited her, and she, she did try to feed me all the time, I had to refuse all the food in her house, was that um, she would get her meals on wheels, which were delivered to her frozen, and she would go in the fridge, and even though she had a microwave and an oven, what she would do is she would put the meals on wheels in a pot with milk and she would heat it up. And that's how she ate it. 
Yeah. So I suppose the first point I want to make is about how um, when we provide meals to older people, I suppose, there's, lack, there's a lack of awareness about how functional changes impact on how they use those meals. And um, we've been doing a study on people with dementia living alone, and this lovely gentleman, his family brought his meals to him. Like they, they cooked them and they brought them to him. But when we looked in his fridge, it was set too cold, so everything was frozen. Um, he had put a tea towel and a little sign across his stove to tell him not to use it because he'd you know, he had not burned a pot once, so he didn't cook himself. He had heat everything up. But he couldn't really tell us how to use his microwave. We also found on his bench a note with sustagen, so they'd got this idea that it was good for him to have supplements. And he said to us, well, you know, they brought this, but I don't know what to do with it. I think I'm meant to take it, but I don't know how. So, he, you know, so there's lots of functional changes. So I think that there, sometimes there's lack of awareness about how functional changes impact on food intake. And there's you know, arthritis, packaging, can openers, like all those issues as well. The second point I, I want to talk about is how um, knowledge of nutritional principles for older people, so stuff like Vicky talked about, doesn't seem to kind of flow across to medical professionals and aged care staff. So something I will see really often in a nursing home, and I've got lots of nursing homes, is that um, older, the, the aged care staff think that cordial is a treat and that as long as people are getting the calories, that's good enough. You know, so just give them a biscuit and a cup of tea and that's okay because they're eating something, right? And that they're old and they, you know, as long as they're getting calories, they're not going to die. Um, the, I guess the other kind of story, we've been really interested in obesity in older people um, late, older people lately um, and I, I suppose there's very little research about whether weight loss is good when you're older um, so my girlfriend's mum who, uh, who's, who's, who's obese and has diabetes, type 2 diabetes she was told to lose weight and to lose it you know, fast, right? so she did but they didn't give her any advice about protein intake or exercise, so she's actually functionally worse off, even though it might be better for her diabetes which is really interesting. Whereas I think if you have type 2 diabetes and you're young and you lost weight, you know, the functional stuff might not happen so much. So she's really having trouble walking or getting out of bed and doing those things because of this functional loss that she's got. Um, so the, the third kind of story I guess I want to tell you about is what Elspeth brought up earlier, that food is social, that food is you know, it's part of enjoyment of life. And very unfortunately, this isn't recognised in a lot of dementia care. So if you read the, the, the newly released Australian clinical guidelines for dementia care, basically it says that, you know, pe people with dementia should be provided adequate nutrition. It doesn't re recognise any of the other aspects. Um, so in m let me tell you the story then of Nora. Nora was an Aboriginal, is an Aboriginal lady, um, and she was refusing to eat in a nursing home. And it took a long time to work out that she had been a maid in her youth and she ate in the kitchen. And so they had to put her meal in the kitchen and if they gave her her meal in the kitchen, she would eat it. So that's the whole social aspect of the food. In a lot of nursing homes, they bring you the food, you sit at the table with they plonk it in front of you, um, and I've said, well, why can't they set the table? You know, in, in some facilities, they're like, oh, no, they can't set the table because of germs. It's not true, but you can't do it. And then I was like, how about family style meals? You know, isn't it normal to sit and share and have a conversation? But that's really difficult. Um, so in more severe dementia, 
people with dementia can still feed themselves and some of their only enjoyment if you give them finger food, but this is really messy and difficult. So you sometimes you'll see staff feeding someone really fast, you know, because that's much easier than letting them feed themselves and making a bit of a mess like you would with a toddler. Um, there's also utensils which can help, so you can give, you know, rocking knives, cutlery, bent handle, two-handle two, two cuts, but you rarely see these in a lot of facilities, and we've had family tell us, oh, we brought the nothing knife, but then it's disappeared because staff don't really get, you know, why this, why this happens. Um, I've been working with Maggie Beer's foundation. She's got a foundation called Appetite for Life. And their sole purpose is to really improve the quality of food in nursing homes, and not just the food, but the social experience. Um, and so, when I went to training a few weeks ago with the foundation, I talked to the chefs there. So she, they do love training with the chefs, and they were telling me stories. I suppose like um, the chef in individual facilities isn't allowed to select the menu because it's all centrally organised, you know, and it's all nutritionally costed, and they can do it cheap, and they just get the supplies and they cook. But then there's no connection to the community or, you know, or being able to cater for the food that people in that facility like. So what if you're an Italian guy and you want to cook Italian food for him? Well, there's no ability to do that. Um, the chefs are really telling us that their budget's not sufficient to provide delicious, healthy meals. So they can do nutrition, maybe not enough protein, but you do nutrition. But to make it really delicious, they can't do it. At the moment, most menus are written without input from the residents. So not, and you know, even someone with dementia can tell you what they like. And if the person with dementia can't tell you, the family can tell you. So you often see families, I know my Asian family, would take you know, my grand-aunt food all the time that she liked. And that was like one of her great sources of pleasure. Even when she couldn't talk, she really liked you know, the soup and the dumplings and things that were familiar. And the facility couldn't provide that. I guess the, the last disconnect is that at the moment, catering staff and clinical staff in facilities operate quite separately to each other. So your, your lifestyle staff, your, your clinical staff, they might know something about the person, but that's not told to catering. Um, and and catering is not told that to the... Catering doesn't, isn't able to input to the clinical team as well. So uh, some of the catering staff complaining that th that the... The floor staff serve the food up, but they don't plate it up in an appealing way. Um, and at the same time, if someone needs a special diet, then the clinical staff complain that catering staff don't really get it or don't appreciate you know, the needs of that person. So let me finish then by telling you one more story about an Italian lady um, who was in a facility that we're working with. Uh, she came as a migrant to... Um, to Australia and she was a matriarch of her family. Now she's got dementia and she's in a high care secure dementia unit. And she makes the staff, when we first met her, she was making the staff crazy because during meals, she didn't want to eat her own food. She wanted to feed the other residents. And she would try and feed solid foods to residents who were puree only. You know, they really had a lot of, she, she really was trying to help, but there was no social role for her. So. So even though this is a food issue, like she's not eating, she's doing something else, the solution was a social solution. So what they did is they got her to help push the, the trolley with things around, you know, with the drinks and stuff. So she had a role and she kind of set the table and she pushed drinks and she did the mothering and then she would sit down and eat afterwards. And that kind of, that was okay. That, that kind of solved that problem. Does that make sense? Um, so she really had a social solution to her appetite and her weight loss issue. Um, so yeah, so those are my stories for you tonight.
So I'll just apologise in advance if I start to cough. Um, I'm not contagious. Just blame the uh, bad allergy season. That's my, my issue. So just first of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to come along. Um, and, uh, you know, your stories really hit home for me because I've had all my oldies, parents and in-laws in nursing homes and that was one of the things when my mum went in and she, was, she had Alzheimer's and um, she wanted to be amongst it. She wanted to move around. She could still walk very quickly. Uh, but that was the problem because they said, oh, no, she's a falls risk. She wants to walk around all the time. And what she wanted to do was actually help to do something. And the only solution they had was actually to put her in a chair with a lockdown table. And it's heartbreaking, you know, and the same as the, the food issues and things. So anyway, I'll get on with my piece rather than go on and on about that. But, yeah, so from a personal perspective, um, I did care for my parents and my in-laws um, in their later years. So I know firsthand the difficulty of juggling work and family in addition to finding the time to ensure that their individual health needs and issues were met, but also uh, their nutrition needs were looked after. And they were all different. My in-laws were Italian background. So I would spend, like, the you know, Monday to Friday at work, and then on the weekends I would spend all day Sunday preparing meals and that was, you know, dinners and soups and desserts and whatever else I could do to ensure that they would eat properly. Um, that's, it's, and it's quite difficult and it's quite um, stressful to do that because at the time I had teenage kids so I think um, the changes in society have seen women having children later, you know, longer education and trying to get into the workforce and then try to, you know, carve out a career. So often they're having children later. So that means that then they are sandwiched in between, you know, younger families and older parents. So the needs, um, the needs of both are, are very demanding and I think that, that probably a lot of people would understand that here or if not they're in that situation where they've seen it happen. Um, the cost of housing, I think, is also very relevant to the impact that it's had on families. Uh, older parents might still be in the family home <coughs> and that could be within a, in a city area or, you know, local area, but their kids have had to move further afield to be able to afford a home and to, to maybe start a family. But just that distance creates its own issues. Um, the distance means that there's less time spent socially together and less opportunity to see if the balanced diet is actually happening when these uh, parents or, you know, other older family members may be starting to, you know, get the, the beginnings of a, a cognitive disorder. And I think, you know, the parents are often reluctant to say that they need assistance because they're from a generation that, wants to be very independent, doesn't want to show that they need to be a burden and that's, that's I think, again, you can probably relate to the fact that, you know, uh, those age groups and I would say, you know, the 80 plus age group, they are definitely want to be independent, definitely want to try and live their lives with dignity and not be a burden. But the problem is that they often do need assistance and it may not be recognised when people aren't seeing them on a regular basis because even when they're going to their family doctor, 
the doctor spends a short time with them, does the necessities, but perhaps doesn't delve into you know, what's really going on in their life. Um, and the situation, I think, is made worse when there's actually no family members, when people are on their own and they may have lost a child uh, or they haven't had kids, then all of a sudden they're on their own. I think, too, that um, we're all very time poor. You know, it just seems to be that everybody's running around trying to fit everything in and it's very hard to, you know, concentrate on one area. So I guess that's a little bit of my feeling about the whole issue of Avoldis. Um, my work, uh, well, I suppose since 2002 I've worked for this particular organisation, Sydney-based, and we do, um, we specialise in home delivery of, of nutritious meals that are health accredited through Diabetes New South Wales, through the Heart Foundation TIC program. Um, we have gluten-free, we have medically low salt, we have uh, various dairy-free, etc. meals that suit the variety of needs that are around now. And so my work involves liaising with health professionals, whether it's through public or private hospitals, mental health units, um, rehab hospitals, community centres, etc. And a large part of my work also relates to um, dealing with care organisations that um, are looking after the people in the community who have an aged care package. So these are a government package of care that can involve different things. Um, <coughs> basically, now it's looking at you know what what they can what the government can do to make sure people stay in their homes as long as possible, and what what requirements they they have, um, and and ha to make them to be able to, to enable them to be able to stay safely in their own home with dignity, and and also having a greater say in what's important to them, what they feel is important to them. And that's a bit of a change because in the past it's really been more about the boxes that you tick. Oh, okay, <coughs> they need help with um, uh, their showering. They need personal care. They need to be able to transport. You know, um, they need to you know ha have a bit of home cleaning and things like that. But so there was boxes that were ticked. But some of the really some of the real personal needs that they felt they wanted were, had never been addressed. So that has changed. It's been a very slow change and it seems to be that people still don't really know about it but the government legislation changed, well, started to change back in 2010 uh, with the introduction of CDC packages which consumer-directed care or client-directed care. <coughs> the big change for that, which really was a joy for me uh, was that food could be included within packaged care. And I never quite understood um, how the government ever felt that food wasn't a necessity when it came to helping people stay at home safely and with dignity. It was, I just couldn't get it. They could be clean, <laughs> they could be really clean, but, you know, their food, well, you know, they didn't have much choice about that. So consumer-directed care, just if you're not familiar with it, is, is a model of service delivery and it's designed to give more choice and flexibility to the consumer. Um, if they receive a home care package, it means that they have more control over the types of care and services that they can access 
access and the delivery of those services, including who delivers it and when that happens. So that's a really big change because people didn't have choice before. So the inclusion of, of meals within CDC has meant that people who might otherwise be at risk of an inadequate diet can be assisted to have health accredited, nutritious, tasty, home-style meals uh, forming part of their aged care package. And I would say that there's a variety of providers out there, not just the company that I happen to be with. There are many different types of organisations out there. Um, many of our referrals, as I say, came, uh, come from hospital discharge planners, dietitians, social workers, who are trying to ensure that their patients are going to have adequate nutrition when they go home. They may have come into the hospital um, after a fall, that's very common, and have been identified as being malnourished, which I know people always sort of think, oh, well, you know, really? But it happens very, very often. It's the statistic on that, and I'm sure people would know better than I, is very high. Um, and I think that, you know, as far as my work is concerned, we have conversations with, with people on a daily basis. You know, all day, every day, we're talking to people that have these issues, that they've come home from hospital, they've got a bit of information, but they're, sure, they're still not sure how it will all work. So it's our job to actually go through and try and help them understand what, what services that they can get which is a shame that they're ringing someone like us <laughs> when you would hope that there would be somebody else out there that would be more appropriate. But it's interesting that I get all the time, you've told me more in five minutes than I've been able to find out the three weeks I've been in hospital. How can that happen? Um, so some of the things that I would say that, uh, that we witness is um, the difficulty when, say, a husband has lost his wife of many years and all of a sudden he's on his own and you're thinking about this generation and younger generations they can probably start again you know um, they can they can find out things but if you're 85 and you've lost your wife and you've never had to cook because that just wasn't the way it was done your wife stayed home she cooked you didn't have to cook um, it's really difficult she might have gone into full-time care so he, he's got the issue about he wants to go and visit but he's also worried about well what's he going to eat he might go to visit and then he's helping to feed her and he's hungry you see this happen in the nursing homes um, and in reverse if the wife has lost her husband to that situation more often than not the, the one thing we hear all the time is I've just lost interest now. I haven't got anyone to cook for. I'm not interested in cooking anymore, but now I'm sick and now the doctor said that this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and you know, I've got to get some food, but I, I'm just not interested. So it can be a, real, a, a really quick downhill slide for people, for especially an elderly person, who's had that sudden change in their life, you know, such as losing a partner. It's, it's, a, it's an event that they often don't really recover from. They, it just, it's sadness for the rest of their life and they, all they can see in front of them is, well, now I've just got to wait out my time until I go, you know. So um, the other common issue that we see is, uh, it relates to a, a new diagnosis of a, a, a new health issue that could be, say, uh, diabetes or uh, a gluten intolerance. Um, 
even diverticulitis, that sort of thing that often will, you know, those sorts of issues will come. And then the, they might, the doctor says, oh, well, now you've got to, you know, you've got to avoid this, this and this and you can't have this and this and now you've got to cook without this. And, and it's just overwhelming for people that have been looking after themselves for a long time to suddenly have to change the way they cook. It's really difficult for them. It's hard enough just for a younger person to sort of start studying labels and in, in minute writing that, oh, does that say it's gluten-free? Do, do I better read all those ingredients? Does that say it's got wheat in it? And, you know, it's, it's really difficult. Okay, so um, basically very hard to change their habits. Um, illness, injury can prevent over, uh, people from preparing them, their own meals. Shopping can be difficult. Transport can be an issue. Having to stand in the kitchen for a long time is difficult for a lot of people. Having to chop up vegetables if you've got arthritis is a problem. Um, they may be suffering from a cognitive issue, which is, again, difficult even to heat things up as you've covered. And um, just basically, even if their vision is poor, it, it's all a chore. So often you'll hear, oh, I, I just have a biscuit or a piece of toast, so you can see the problem. Very dangerous with people for diabetes. Um, poor, poor diet, it's shown in many studies to not only have a physical effect but a mental effect as well. In a multicultural society, um, there's a, a great need for uh, meals that are suitable for um, culturally and linguistically diverse uh, area of the community. Um, so anyway, it can be city living, also it can be very isolating. Long-term neighbours might have moved into other forms of accommodation, um, moved away to live with family. Uh, and often those homes are now inhabited by younger people, uh, working people. So that scenario um, of maybe somebody coming in to bring a meal in when somebody's sick just may not happen anymore. And no one to drive them, maybe give them a lift to the supermarket or that sort of thing. Anyway, there is assistance out there and there are health professionals that understand that people can be referred to care organisations uh, that can be referred for an ACAT assessment and that sort of thing to see whether they qualify for an aged care package and certainly within that aged care package, yes, you can have meals. Don't let anyone tell you you can't have meals as long as you have the nutrition needs and it's identified that you need help with nutrition and it's a very grey area. The government, has, the legislation reads that, you know, if you are religious, cultural, a health issue, etc., it's a really grey area. So basically, if you're over 80 and you're having difficulty with nutrition, you're, you're entitled to get some meals. Thanks. And I didn't cough. Thank you. Hello. Thank you very much to the speakers. First of all, sorry I was a bit late. Um, I'm interested in the area of um, CDC in particular. I'm aware that the home care packages have been introduced for residential living in the community, but I was interested whether any of the speakers had any thoughts on how it may affect the residential aged care sector. I'm thinking in particular... Um, I've been involved with the Lantern Project. I don't know if you're familiar with them, and they're doing a lot of work around um, quality of life through better nutrition, food and nutrition in residential aged care. And a lot of the conversations that are being had around the table when the members meet is around CDC coming through into the residential aged care sector, particularly as typically there's kind of lifestyle factors in residential aged care are often fairly low on the priority list compared to some of the other more clinical needs of people in residential aged care. Um, as they tend to be more advanced. So I guess I'm just interested in general thoughts around how something like consumer-directed care could impact on the way that food is, is um, delivered in that setting. 
So I think that in the reform there was certainly mention of CDC coming into residential aged care, but certainly no indication of how that's going to be operationalised. Um, the reforms have meant that um, aged care providers can charge for extra services. We're starting to see extra services mean more food choices or different food choices. I mean, what that means is it'd be great for people who can afford the extra services. You get a choice of menu maybe. You get to request what you get. But I think for people on a pension who are getting basic care, that might they still probably wouldn't get that. Um, I think it's going to be really interesting to see whether um, you can create a business model which will where the provider can offer quite a lot of choice but still within the budget. So um, to give you an idea, a high care aged care place is subsidised for about $130, between $130 and $170, $180 a day. That's the subsidy. And then on top of that, they charge a bond and accommodation and stuff, but that's the government sub subsidy. Oh, I can't, I can't remember. It really depends. If they're on a pension, they pay nothing. Uh, and so then the gov so, and, um, facilities have to, have to keep a certain number of non-accommodation bond places. But then they charge an accommodation bond, which in this area could be between half a million to a million dollars which then they get interest from. And then there's a daily care fee on top of that. So it's actually really expensive to go into a facility. Um, but, then, but then if you, if the provider will say, well, for say I'm getting $180 a day, you know, I have to provide 24-hour nursing care for that. I have to provide a bed, um, you know, showers, and, and the three meals plus afternoon tea. And, and that's, the food budget doesn't end up being that big, I think, in that. I haven't done a lot of work in the residential aged care area, but just to comment, there are some places who are actually investigating other options and to provide those healthier meals and, and in, in a range of culturally acceptable ways that are, that are culturally diverse. And I know one of the organisations that's, that's working a lot in this space is Hemant Care and that they're doing a lot of work to investigate providing quality foods, having chefs prepare it and to really explore different ways of doing their menu. But they probably have a, a, a cost that they're actually, they are probably are, are purposefully put investing resources into that space. Yeah. Yeah. So Peter Morgan-Jones, who's the executive chef for Herman Care, um, he's done some really interesting work in that. Um, they have a different model. So they have little cottages, and even though the food might be cooked, mostly cooked somewhere else, they actually truck it into a little kitchen, which looks like a kitchen, and they heat it up or finish it there. And so it feels like a home, and they can smell the food. And, uh, and, and then the residents wash up, and then it gets washed up again. But, you know, so it feels like a house, and, they, and it feels like a dining room. And... That's the model. They have a fridge where residents can go and pick things out, but most places don't. You know, so they can go and snack and stuff. No, they're, they're, they're specialised. Yeah. yeah. So this this area has been had a lot of attention paid to it, and it is it is it is quite concerning when you hear these stories. Um, so I, I think what has happened over the years, the way that we provide food in hospitals has changed. So I, I worked in a hospital system 30 years ago. I find myself back in that hospital space in the last five years. So I, and I see that change. So the, the way that it was provided 30 years ago, all the food was prepared on site and it was plated up in the kitchens on site. And, and you know, a lot of attention was paid to 
um, making sure that it you know, followed the required diet requirements. And so now I fast forward 25 years and I've seen big changes. And so the, the, the way that we're providing food in hospitals now is mostly, it's, it's mostly cooked chill, so it's actually it's cooked elsewhere and then it's transported a bit like you were saying in the Henneke, but, but it's, it's, it, has, it lacks some of that sort of that, that sense of it, it's, it's the en masse cooking and I really think it's probably resource driven that that's making those that's created that change and so that it's around providing hospitals at, as, as cheaply as we can that's still going to give people you know, nutrients and energy requirements but that there is concern around plate wastage and the, that issue around the, the opening of packages. So there was recently some work that was done at St Vincent's which was quite an interesting case. You mentioned St Vincent's that at the public hospital they were not opening the packages, they were providing the food all packaged up. At the private hospital they were opening the packages. <laughs> and, and so it was the ideal opportunity to actually see what was happening there from a plate wastage point of view and it actually, we, we could actually say, yes, this was actually a big issue for people. That, and they actually had some films. We had some, some work, interesting work done with the University of Wollongong, actually, and opening up those packages. We had some films of those, um, of, of the people trying to open up the packages and all the problems that they had and taking videos of them. And then they said, right, this is not good enough for our public patients. We shouldn't be doing this. And so they've now instituted that they will open up all packaging across the hospital, whether it's public or private. So they changed their practices in response to that, to their credit. So I think people, I think hospitals do want to be responsive and do the right thing, but you know it's going to be driven by resources largely. And and so then, then at now I'm at Westmead. I've seen another situation that's just coming into hospitals, and it will come across the board in New South Wales. It's just been started a new hospital in Blacktown Hospital, which is part of the, the Western Sydney LHD, where you actually can choose off a menu that's quite flexible and you'll be, rather than choosing from the menu and being provided something 24 hours later and you, you're a whole different sort of kettle of fish, you're not sure what, what, whether you're going to be eating or what it, how you feel about it, you actually get to choose from a menu with more flexibility the types of range of different ethnically and culturally diverse sort of foods that you get to have for the next meal. So you choose around morning tea time for what you're going to have for lunch. Again, it's been prepared elsewhere but then it's put together on a plating tray. So I went and looked at their plating tray line-up recently at Blacktown. It's the first model hospital that's doing this in New South Wales and then they're going to explore a whole lot of things about plate wastage and, and whatever. That's what we're expecting to, to be occurred. Yeah, so this was a public hospital. Yeah. And th but one of the good things about it that was quite interesting observing the whole process. The people who are helping people make the menu selection are also then going down to the kitchens and helping with the plating tray. And there is a little bit of a connection there between the, the person in the bed and then what they're receiving. And I actually think that's a good part of the process, so that's actually quite good. Yeah. So I think there's work towards this because we're, we're concerned about plate wastage. We're concerned about people having enough energy. That might be out of my control, but I... <laughs> um, sorry, thank you very much for your talk. So great. Um, is there going to be an issue with resourcing them and are there waiting lists for people to, them to go on? I'm saying my daughter's a social worker. My husband keeps saying, why did she do that? Why did she study social work? Anyway, nevertheless... Um, and she has uh, worked for several different places and as a care manager. 
and from very first-hand experience, not only from her but from many care managers that I work with every day, yes, of course, it's an under-resourced area. Um, back, I think it was in 2009 or 10 when there was a big seminar out at uh, Homebush where it was the ageing... What, what did they call it then? Um, ageing better, ageing... Living longer, living better. They've changed its name over and over again to try and confuse us. But back then... It w they were going to be, there was 10,000 new workers supposed to be recruited to help with this future plan of the CDC. didn't happen. And so, yes, as far as workers are concerned, as far as care managers are concerned to try and organise this, it's very understaffed, under-resourced for sure. Um, <coughs> and the feedback that we get all the time is that the... It is a harder and more demanding and more expensive model because you can imagine in the old days you might see a, a, a client once every six months just to tick off a few boxes, make sure everything was okay. If they didn't like their care worker, well, that was a bit of bad luck. If they weren't getting the services quite the way they wanted them, well, that's the best they could offer. If they had a different person coming in every single day when they really wanted the, some, some regularity in the, in the person coming to shower them, bad luck again. So, yeah, it's under-resourced. Uh, it's a poorly paid area. Um, and, and, you know, even social workers, you know, that are working hard or care managers, whatever background they're from, you know, it's not a highly paid job and it's a very demanding job and can be really, um, you know, frustrating for people trying to do that job. So there's a quick turnover of staff. Yes, yeah, they burn out really fast because... They want to do the best they can for their clients, but it's it's very frustrating and 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 heartbreaking, especially when you're dealing with disability clients. It's just terrible situations. Can I just throw in that um, when we were talking about residential care, um, there is a budget that uh, people that are uh, that are um, tended have tended you know to supply food to um, uh, nursing homes. And often that budget is under ten dollars a day for breakfast, lunch, dinner, morning, and afternoon tea. Yeah, yeah, it's got to be under. In fact, it's about well, about around the eight dollar mark. I was being generous at ten because I didn't think anyone would believe me. But anyway, yeah, that's that's what it is. So you can imagine that that's pretty difficult. Um, and that's you know, I mean, the government's spending a lot of money on these packages to try and encourage people and enable people to stay at home, which I think is a great thing because people mainly want to stay in their own home. Sometimes it's not, all the, it's not always the best idea for them to be there, but that's where they want to be. But I thought I'd just throw that in as far as costs are concerned. And our packages are very easy to get open, by the way. <laughs> when I go out, and I don't know if anybody has ever seen ours, uh, I always make the, the OT, because there's often an OT attending a presentation, and I make the, and I always ask them, you know, what's their dominant hand? And I say, oh, my right hand. And I say, okay, well, put that hand behind your back because you've just come home and you've had a stroke. So you've only got one hand. You've got to push this up against the microwave in the kitchen and you've got to open this with your left hand. So you need to be able to do this. And so that's what I make them do because they have to imagine um, what it's like for somebody that's just come home from hospital and they're pretty devastated that they've been through all this rehab but now what's their life going to look like? Anyway, I found the um, they, they were great presentation, just a wonderful panel. Thank you. I found it very interesting the discussion about the calories because my dad's 85 and I went home and he was he was drinking sustagen and getting dehydrated, 
and I went to the doctor with him. We had a conversation with the doctor about the fact that he got the sustagen recommended to him by the pharmacist without any discussion about what else he was taking for his other health issues. And again, I just wondered about that. A lot of people like my dad, I guess, they love going into the pharmacy and having a chat. So they're trying stuff. And when it comes to losing weight and feeling like you wanna, you've got to put on weight, you know, you've got to put on weight, it's actually quite dangerous that you'd start drinking some of those really high-powered, very calorific and, and energy-dense, very, very likely. But I wondered about the calorie. How do you, how do you deal with that? And any of you in your, in your practice or your discussions with, with people who are ageing about the fact that those sorts of things are right for one person but not for another, I guess? So, obviously, when someone starts taking sustenance or products like that, um, it would, would be hoped that someone's looking at the, their whole of diet and what else, is, what else they're consuming. It might be quite appropriate for, for a range of people who are losing weight rapidly. Um, so, uh, and, and so that's, it's, it's got a range of nutrients in it. That's one of the reasons. And it's got protein. And, but it, it should be should be consumed as directed on the packaging. So some people, that just that discussion that was about what do I do with this sustenance container now that you brought up leaf A, and I thought to myself, oh, that's just such a classic, isn't it? So someone needs to actually show someone how to use the product and are they adding it to what are they adding it to whatever they're adding it to, which is the directions. But also it really should be in the context of what else they're doing and consuming in the range of their, their food. So, so it... It, for, for many people, that may be appropriate, but it would, the concern would be whether it's necessary or not, and whether it's, you know, it, it, I, I guess because it has that range of nutrients in it, so that's one of the reasons why it is a commonly used and, and recommended product, because people often are suffering from micronutrient deficiencies as well, so it allows people to get some mi micronutrients in at the same time, as well as protein. But it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a matter of just making sure that it's, well, it's in the balance of what else they're consuming. And that's probably not going to be assessed unless they have a dietitian assess their diet, to be frank, because people are just not going to know the details. And, and, and the pharmacists won't know the details. The GP won't know those details. As, as really, that's the dietitian skills. And we don't really have that many dietitians out there, to be frank. Yeah, people, it's hard for people to access private practice dietitian, and we've only got a, a handful of them in the public sector. That's what it comes down to. Um, just with the Mediterranean diet and how you were saying before the blue zones, and they, you know, they had, you know, they share the commonality between having a more plant-based diet. Is that currently reflected in in meals that are that are given to to age, you know, the to age in aged care and in residential homes? <coughs> From our point of view, our perspective, uh, all our meals are, have to be checked um, for nutrient value and have to be looked at by a dietitian. So uh, there is, um, there is a, a certain amount of protein that has to be in the meal, carbohydrate and fibre to pass you know, for diabetes and for all the other requirements. So ours is based on, a, on the general meal, not specific. We do have some vegetarian meals, but we don't base it on a... It's really hard when you're doing this sort of thing to base it on what you call a Mediterranean diet. Because for a start, we don't know what else the person's eating during the day. You know, we're, we're, we may be providing just um, a, a main meal or they may be taking some soups and things like that or other nutritious sort of snacks that we provide. 
But in general, we don't know what else they're having. 